HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by the Brooklyn Kitchen, a mom-and-pop operation since 2006. They provide the tools that shape our food culture. Visit them at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, or visit thebrooklynkitchen.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Afternoon, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Bushwick, Brooklyn, on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we're going to do things a little bit differently, and we're going to combine all of our segments into one big interview with, wait for it, the one, the only, Sam Cass. Hmm. Sam is the former executive director of Let's Move and senior policy advisor for nutrition in the Obama administration. In this capacity, he led the first lady's work to help America raise a healthier generation and ensure that kids have an opportunity for the long, healthy lives they deserve. Sam began his time at the White House as the first lady's food initiative coordinator and as assistant chef under Chris Comerford. After leaving the White House, he founded Trove Worldwide and is serving as Chief Consumer Experience Officer at Init, a food tech company. Sam, welcome to the show. It's so good to be here. <laughs> so great to have you. Um, all right, let's start from the from the very beginning. How did you come to work at the White House? Um, some hard work and a bit of luck. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I had been training. Uh, I trained in Vienna and Austria um, and sort of cooked my way around the world after that. It's been about five years traveling and came back to to Chicago, coincidentally, right when the campaign had been announced. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first lady was, uh, it was basically the first lady, the president and grandma. Uh, they didn't have like a, any kind of staff or anything. Really. Yeah. And so I started helping her out a couple times a week because um, the kids were young and she had to start campaigning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'd already been very much involved in food and politics and been working and learning and thinking about, about all kinds of issues when it came to our food system. And so started cooking and helping out and then One started thing led to another. dreaming about what we could do on, uh, on food issues if we ever got to the white house, but he was 30 points down the polls. We, we didn't think he had a chance. So uh, amazing. But he pulled it off. Yeah. And, uh, well, you all did. Yeah. It was a team effort. It was a team effort. Big team um, effort. 
And thank God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, uh, the family's had an incredible impact. Um, what was life like at the, I know that's like a very broad question, but can you kind of talk about maybe your typical day early on when you were chefing and then kind of later when you moved into more of a policy role? Um, yeah, well, I was from the beginning was doing both the chef work and the policy uh, from day one. It, it evolved. So they laid it all on you at once. Yeah, well, we didn't, you know, you go in with a sense of what you, you know, a direction of what you want to work on, but uh-huh. nothing prepares you for that building. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And there's no, there's no like, you know, manual when you walk in the door. <laughs> uh, so you have to kind of figure it out, you know, figure it out from the beginning. And particularly for us, there'd never been a single person with a title that had the word nutrition or food in right. it. Right. In the history of the White House, right? yeah. So there was no, there was no. Sometimes you can look back at, at administrations past and get a sense of how do they structure the right. government to take on a certain set of issues. We didn't have any of that. Um, so my days were pretty crazy. Um, in, in the beginning, you know, the the policy work. The first thing we did was the garden, and then let's move kind of grew out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, the days were, you know, working on various policy issues uh, or meeting with companies or stakeholders, advocates, mm-hmm. you know, working on strategy, um, developing our next set of events, whatever it may be. So that was like the days were just super intense, just yeah. back to back to back to back. Yeah. And then I'd look down at my watch and be like, oh, shit, I got to get dinner on the table yeah. in a half an hour. And I'd start for the president, for the president. And then, <laughs> and then I, there's times where I literally like had lost track of time and would look at my watch and just get up and start running. <laughs> Uh, through the halls of the White House, which is not really what you want to be doing typically. Yeah. Secret Service sort of got used Maybe to Maybe raise some red flags. Yeah, yeah, yeah Secret <laughs> Service. Got, oh, that's just the chef. Uh, and uh, would, you know, get dinner on the table very quickly. I got, I got, I would say my cooking skills over the years have gotten worse, uh, but my speed has gotten worse. Right. Really good. And your, as your policy also, knowledge increased. Yes. Um, dying to know the food patterns of the Obamas. Uh, you know, we heard this thing about seven almonds yeah that's such nonsense <laughs> but like what is you know? a perfect example of like how much f- just fundamentally factually false things are reported as truth yeah so that that so the for just the background yeah there's uh new york times did a story on on what does he do at night yeah and he's the most disciplined human being i've ever seen right i think that speaks to that right well, that, an and it was a joke right. it wasn't an example it was a joke we have a running joke that just makes fun of how disciplined he is by saying if he's gonna have a snack it would be like seven almonds and that got but changed. he doesn't eat seven almonds <laughs> he's like the most he's a very relaxed easygoing guy so he doesn't count his almonds but he does read every night like 500 pages of super important memos yeah to prepare for the next day and to make these big decisions so what i was saying is like no he doesn't binge at night. He's like focused and doing his work. Uh, and of course it gets reported and sensationalized, but <laughs> so anyways, but they eat very normal. Yeah. Uh, they're not, um, nothing fancy. Dinner was just one plate. Yeah. Uh, and regular food, uh, you know, lots of chicken, fish, lots of brown rice and whole grains, always vegetables. Um, and then like a good burger, uh, you know, every once in a while, once in a while. Yeah. Pizza night, you know, so, so pretty standard, yeah. healthy American fare. Exactly. Amazing. Okay. So shifting to policy, um, want to talk a little bit about it. Um, one of the things that I experienced during my term, during my time in government is that not a lot of people have a very clear understanding 
of what it takes to actually make big policy change. Mm -hmm. Um, So can you, from your perspective, walk us through the policy, perhaps maybe in the context of the administration's success with school meals? Mm -hmm. So I think there's two, there's two big parts of this. And one, I don't think people really understand it all. First is like, how do you get a big policy goal accomplished? And then how do you defend it? Yeah. Well, yes. Uh, Right now it's like, and that's, and, and that's constant. And so some of our biggest wins are preventing catastrophes that nobody ever would ever hear about because it's not technically a point on the board, but, um, and school lunch is a perfect example of that. You know, I think it starts with, um, it starts with, uh, a number of key elements. One is that you have, um, a big coalition of advocates and supporters who are willing to push something forward. And by the way, who over years have done the hard work of, ha- of mm-hmm. helping to come up with the actual policy objectives and potential solutions for what the, what the actual policy could look like. So some of the key elements of the, in the bill are thing, first of all, was raising the nutrition standards. Mm-hmm. Um, so helping to craft like what that could look like is incredibly important for government officials to have those kind of in you know insights from experts mm-hmm. um, having uh, or things like offer versus serve. A big fight was: do you have to just have some vegetables there, or do yeah. you actually have to serve them? And mm-hmm. what are the implications there? Um, vending machine policy: there was no policy. You could sell whatever you want in a la carte lines or vending machines. And there right. was no standards. Yeah. Right. So, like identifying the big areas that we needed to work on had been done before we got there. Um, yeah. So you had the health advocates which were starting to get aligned and organized, which is super important. And the big, a big turning point here was that we all were, advocates and the administration, were able to work with industry and get them on board. So for the most part, particularly in the beginning, now this coalition fell apart, which is what a lot of the pushback ended up coming later, um, we had all the major companies, at the very least, not fighting and Mm -hmm. some actively supporting. Mm -hmm. And so when you have the area where you think you get resistance on board, now we're going up to the hill with with everybody saying we should do this. And when you have that kind of coalition and you have a pretty clear set of what the policy should look like, um, and then you have leadership from the White House, which is just super important. Right. and it took the not only the first lady working the phones and being engaged very publicly, but also the president um, really in, uh, weighed in in critical moments at the very end. And if it weren't for that, I don't think the bill would have been passed. Who were members of the coalition, if you feel comfortable? Oh, yeah, saying? sure. No, they're very public. So like American Heart Association, Center for Science and Public Interest, the American Dietetic Association, like all of those health groups. And the list is long. And mm-hmm. um, Pew. Um, what about anti-hunger um, organizations? Absolutely. The whole anti-hunger world was yeah. completely on board, although it, it became fraught um, because they funded part of it with some SNAP dollars from a particular portion of SNAP, mm-hmm. uh, which we didn't love. But the School Nutrition Program is the biggest hunger program for children in, yeah. in, in, in the country. 31 million meals uh, yeah, 31 million kids. Kids, uh, kids, yeah. Yeah, so it's more meals than that, actually. Mm. Um, and, uh, and we had a, one of the best provisions in the bill, which got very little attention, was called the Community Eligibility Program, which allowed schools with 40% more free-reduced kids to serve universal breakfast and lunch, meaning mm-hmm. everybody got it for free. Um, and this was a particularly important for breakfast because at lunch, everybody's eating yeah. something. 
for breakfast, it was only the poor kids who would go get free breakfast. And you have to get there early. You have to get there early. And if you were there, that meant you were poor. And so there was a real stigma around that for these young kids. And it led to very low participation rates, even though these kids were super hungry uh, because they didn't want to be ashamed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by allow- now serving this to, to all kids, we've seen participation rates go up and you see incredible uptick in grades and attendance. Um, when schools are implementing this. So it was huge, huge win. So so the hunger groups were really on board, and, you know, big industry was on board. Uh, they were supportive of it. Even even when it meant, like, say, for the beverage industry, um, a lot of their beverages could no longer be served in schools as a matter of policy. They had taken a lot of them out. Right. But it took it even further. In the vending machines? In the vending machines uh, and the a la carte lines. Um, but they were totally on board. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, we were sh- stronger in our rules than they had hoped, right. but still knew it was the right thing to do and didn't want to be positioned as fighting against good school nutrition. Um, and that's yeah. part, you need a strategy yeah. and how you position the rule, how you position the effort makes it either easy for somebody who's not going to benefit to attack mm-hmm. or, or if you have a pretty tight strategy, it's like, okay, you want to fight us on this? Like, let's have this fight. Hmm. We'd love it. You're like, let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. And I've said that very clearly to, to them many times. And yeah. Um, so you need that kind of strategy as well. And by the way, you mentioned the community eligibility mm-hmm. um, provision, and it's now on the chopping block in the new iteration of of the... Yeah, but that's because they put everything on the chopping block. <laughs> uh, Don't worry. It's not just that. It's everything. Yeah, it's everything. I mean, so... so, so but here's the other part of making policy. So we get the bill passed. Um, then parts of industry start fighting it. Republicans go very hard against it. And... Every single approach cycle where mm-hmm. we're approving the budget mm-hmm. and every other opportunity that they have, they try to put riders in those big bills that are really important to pass or the government shuts down. So you're able to throw some stuff in there and it, you put the administration in a tough spot. Like, are you willing to shut down the government over like serving a vegetable? Right. Right. And so you and there's a million of those things. And so you're always having to try to figure out what are the priorities? What are you willing to give up? And so it's a big fight. And every year we went through that multiple times a year in oh different, in different ways. Yeah. Right. But certainly the approach is a huge part of it. And so that defense, um, is a huge part of making policy, right? Which people don't necessarily see and definitely don't, don't understand, but staying engaged on it as advocates and people who care about this is super important because they need to know that there's consequences if you're going to now start rolling back this. So there would, when you're in that big fight and they stake a lot of face to whatever this one thing is, mm-hmm. part of the strategy is how do you help the other side save a little face but not give up anything that's going to hurt kids? And so you'll hear talk of like, oh, they took this back. It's like we, the integrity of that bill has remained 100% intact. Um, there's been some little things here and there uh, because that's just part of how the game gets played. Mm-hmm. But... Um, but in the end, we were able to protect all of the core elements of that bill. It's really an incredible accomplishment. Um, okay, so I want to also talk about the administration's work on antibiotic use mm-hmm. in animals. Um, there was some movement with the FDA's 2013 voluntary guidelines to phase out antibiotic use for the purposes of promoting animal growth or feed efficiency. Mm-hmm. Yet, given the magnitude of the situation and the fact that there's, you know, there's a very real public health crisis looming. Mm-hmm. 
some may say you guys didn't get far enough. So I want to I want to hear your view on this issue and what you think it will really take to make progress. Uh, yeah, plenty of people have said that. Um, I happen to disagree with them, uh, not surprisingly. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I think it remains to be seen how effective this policy is. Um, a lot of the criticism is utterly disingenuous because the approach is only coming into uh, effect now. Okay. Um, so it, it's way too early to tell. So basically there's two key elements to what, what we did. Um, essentially, what a, what, a, what a bill would have done uh, or a rule would have done in this situation would have made the companies who supply the antibiotics change the label of how it's allowed to be used. Mm-hmm. And then, then if a farmer violates that label, no matter how that label is, if you if you violate how the antibiotic is supposed to be used, or and that's true for anything, a pesticide or anything else, that, that's breaking the law, right? Mm-hmm. So the key is changing the label. So the FDA, instead of going through a very long, arduous rulemaking process for each Antibiotic, which is what it would have taken, which have been long and, and drawn out and uh, fraught. Uh-huh. Um, they were able to convince the makers, the major manufacturers of all those, those antibiotics, to change their labels to say you cannot use this for growth promotion. So the end result of that rule uh-huh. has been accomplished. Um, now, are farmers going to follow it would be a problem whether you change that rule by a regulation or you got them to do it on their own you're still going to have a challenge of what are farmers actually doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so enforcement is going to, was going to be a challenge no matter what. The other thing that um, the FDA did, which is huge, was say if you're going to – so first you can't – now you can no longer use it for growth promotion. And secondly, if you're going to use antibiotics, you need a veterinarian to prescribe it. Yeah, that's, that's a transformational. Very, yeah, that's just, very important. Just transformational. And anybody that says it's not like literally doesn't know what they're talking about. <laughs> Um, it's just true. Now, it does the the thing that we don't have. I think the missing piece is data. Um, so farmers do not have to disclose legally how much they're using. And right now, I actually think uh, most people who are close to this think that the reporting farmers currently are way under reporting, and so it's hard to know where we are and where we need to go. Mm-hmm. Um, you can look at sales data, but he, but that's not a direct indication of what's really going on necessarily. So. I think the the missing piece is transparency and disclosure and in, in use, and we'll be able to get a, a sense. And, and if it's not gone far enough, and this action hasn't worked, then you need to figure out a rule to fix the parts that are missing. But I think um, we've took really strong action here, um, and I think accomplished at least the core set of what um, what we set out to do. And now we got to see what the results are. So, you know, in general, you're, you're a proponent of voluntary action, uh, voluntary regulations? Like- uh, no, no, I think it's a case-by-case basis. I think there's some times where you have alignment, mm-hmm. and antibiotics is one of them, where you can accomplish a lot of your objectives in a, through a voluntary path, which oftentimes saves years and years of time, if not a, more, decades, of fighting, it it can save tons of resource, and you can just accomplish your goals much quicker. Sometimes you gotta fight it out, and you gotta pass the law or um, or pass the policy, you know, craft the regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's risk involved in that, um, and so you, depending on the situation, you have to say, okay, what's what's my best chance to accomplish these core set of objectives, and what's the strategy that I think is going to get us there 
with the best result in the end at, within the most efficient way possible. Um, because you, you know, you have a short amount of time to try to get a lot of stuff done. And so I think, um, sometimes that means you can work voluntarily. Sometimes there's areas where, uh, you, you know, there's some agreement or some shared interest that, you know, the companies know it's not necessarily what they want to do, but they know it's maybe the right thing to do, or they know long-term a rule is going to come and it's going to cost them a ton of money to fight it or to do whatever they're going to do. So like, you know what, let's just craft something and move forward. But sometimes that's not, you're not going to get that done or you're not going to get an outcome that you would feel good about. And so you got to go through the hard, the hard rulemaking process. Um, so recently you've been pretty outspoken about the role of big food and the fact that we can't completely ignore the private sector. Uh, first of all, how do you define big food? Who are the major players and what do you see as big food's role in the food movement? Um, yeah. So first of all, I, I think we, big food is like talked about like this monolithic right. giant that like lurks in the forest <laughs> and like, you know, creeps in and is like, and it's, it's just not how it works. Uh, you know, quote unquote, big food is made up of a bunch of different companies of various size who basically all hate each other and compete. You know, sometimes they, they unite because there's just some kind of mutually uh, shared threat to their interests. But for the most part, like they're always fighting each other. Like soda, for instance. Yeah, like soda for sure. Mm-hmm. But like Coke and Pepsi hate each other. Right. You know, but but there's sometimes but where like still- a soda tax. They they're both don't align. like it. Yeah. yeah. And they're both members of ABA. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So so it just depends on the issue. But I think we, we think about them as being this one united front, and they're not. Um, you know, and I think different companies are positioned differently in the market. They have different interests. And some, as you can see, you know, as these issues play out, um, some are in a position because of their leadership or because of what they're making to take a more progressive stand on things, and some are going to fight. Um you know, like on schools, it was very interesting. The ones that ended up fighting were the frozen pizza guys and the french fries guys. Uh, everybody else largely was, was pretty supportive um, through it. So you yeah. see, like, their coalitions can break down pretty quickly. Um, and, I, you know, I think my, my, my basic take is that big food, quote-unquote, however you want to call it. Industry. Industry. Um, they have to change. They're changing, but there's a lot more change that needs to come. But... Um, but they're feeding everybody. And so it's, it's, just, it's just laughable to me to think that you can change what everybody's eating uh, without engaging the, the companies that are feeding everybody. Um, and this is not, you know, food is different than tobacco. And the, the people make that analogy. It just misses the point. Um, food is our culture. It's who we are. It's how we express our identity. It's how we show love to each other. It's it's um, it's such a core fabric of our daily lives that we're you know we're eating three plus times a day. Um, you can't just write a law that change that. It's so much a, cult, a part of our culture, mm-hmm. um, and people love the food that they eat. So, and people don't like government meddling in it. And and I get that. Um, I don't honestly like depending on who's in power. I. Like, I, for one, wouldn't want Donald Trump meddling in what I ate, for sure. I, right? so, I don't want Donald Trump meddling in, in anything, anything yes, that I, I agree. do. <laughs> obviously, obviously, I agree with that. But, but so you know what I mean? So I think it's, so it's a complex set of, of questions. And whether you like it or not, uh, and a lot of the criticism big, of, quote, unquote, big food, like I, it's defined my whole approach to my work and my life. Yeah. Um, but but what, what good food people haven't um, – done is to figure out what is the role because they're here 
Yeah. Like one way or the other, like they're going to continue to feed people. And it's for me, not enough and kind of unacceptable for wealthy elite, good food people who can afford to not have to engage in that food system, uh, to just dismiss any engagement with them while everybody else continues to have to eat those products and say any, any engagement with them is bad. Um, we had to take a responsibility and figure out what is the role for these companies? How do they need to change, uh, and, and get in the messy business of, of actually making progress as opposed to, you know, laying out these idyllic visions of, of how the world should be and then throwing a temper tantrum when it's not there and saying any progress to that, uh, direction to that vision is not enough and not good enough. That's not what's going to get us where we need to go. And in fact, has become a huge disincentive for action and for change from government officials and from businesses. And those are the people that need to change. Right. Um, so who do you think the biggest change agents are uh, in the movement, in the food movement, um, like consumers, industry, government? And can you give an example of where this sector or group has been successful? Um, so I think um, the, the biggest change is coming from consumers, yeah. Uh, they're creating the conditions that make these other changes possible. Um, and, but I see it playing out in all kinds of different ways. Um, and it, and it's not going to come from one place. Um, you know, what ends up on our tables is a result of an incredibly complex, uh, set of forces and dynamics that result in, in these foods being produced. And it has a lot to do with our culture and who we are. It has a lot to do with the kind of the businesses that are shaping it and the agricultural interests that are shaping it and policy. And it's all of that. Um, so who's, who's, I mean, I'm seeing it everywhere. Uh, this next wave of entrepreneurs that are starting businesses that are working to solve the problems of health, climate change, sustainability, they're and starting to express the, the, the desires, particularly of the next generation, younger generation, uh, are putting a tremendous amount of pressure on the marketplace to change. Um, both in the growth of their companies, but then also then the pressure that puts on the bigger guys to to try to catch up. And it's starting to become a race to the top, which is awesome. Yeah. Like companies are now competing on who has the least additives, who has the most vegetables, who has the most sustainable products. Like that's what you want. And every day you see yet another announcement from somebody around, you know, less crap, more good stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's great. I mean, that's what you want people competing on. Right. Um, and so that, that dynamic is, um, is playing out. It has not translated to politics yet. Um, the quote unquote food movement, um, is not much of a movement when it comes to political engagement and it's a cultural transformation, which is the underpinnings of what a movement could become, which I think is super exciting. And we're starting to build that infrastructure, but it's not yet because there's a dynamic, a strategic, sophisticated movement that's working in the halls of Washington and getting a lot of stuff done. Yeah, a little, a little uncoordinated. That's uh, the biggest understatement I've heard all week, <laughs> uh, and that's okay. But we have to take honest stock of where we are, uh, and not uh, honestly. I think the administration, and first lady in particular, has made um, it seem like there's a more powerful food movement than there is. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Because we were in there kicking butt, not not as a result of lobbying and tr strategy, but because she just happened to care about this stuff. She's amazing. Yeah, she's unbelievable. And so, but that's kind of covered up the fact that 
we don't have a lot of lawyers that are trained in food policy yet. Mm-hmm. In fact, when we went into the White House, just to give a, just an example, um, there was not a single law school that had a food policy center in it. Well, that's changed. Changed dramatically. Yeah. And that's huge. Because if you want a movement, you need lawyers yeah. who are crafting policy and suing people and, like, going to work. Um, and we didn't, we didn't have – we had – there was – the food studies program at NYU is the only degree you could get when we entered. Now the degrees are everywhere, which is awesome. Yeah. So you're, we're having this whole generation is going to come out like armed and ready to go. And that's what you need. Um, and so I see it coming and it's really exciting. Um, yeah. I'm optimistic. But we have to also be honest about where where we need to put our energy and and how we need to focus. Um, it's worth noting that Kim Kessler, who was the star, the founder of this show, uh, did so well. She was at the UCLA Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy, which she helped start. Um, so, just an yeah, example she's of awesome. yes, she's amazing. Yeah. I love her. Okay, so uh, speaking of you know, kind of. The administration, politics, uh, this election cycle has been one for the books. Lots of speeches, debates, no mention of food, food policy. Yep. What do you think the responsibility is um, for advocating for a strong national food policy in the White House? Well, that's where the movement part comes in. The reason why nobody's asked the question is because voters aren't voting on that issue yeah. at all. And anybody who like tries to look at some survey that says people care about it, um, it, it's 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 uh, misleading. So yes, when you ask a family, do you care about food and health? Every family will say yes. When you ask a family, rank and order your priorities: food and health, jobs, the economy, your wages, health care, security, uh, crime, gun violence. It's like not, not doesn't, on the list. it doesn't show up. Yeah. Okay. So if you want pol- the as messy and ugly as our democracy seems certainly right now, and it's always messy, if you want politicians it, – it still kind of works. If you want politicians to answer to certain things, voters on a wide basis have to care about it. And, it, it, and we sort of keep have this weird kind of messiah like, why don't you just do it because it's right? Like That's not how it works. Uh, it has to be a priority. It has to be a priority for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. If you want a president to take it on as their platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's how it should work, by the way. Right. Uh, and so we got a lot of work to do and, and like criticizing, look in, in the, just to keep this in mind, they didn't ask a question about climate change. I, yeah, that's a really good point. So like, let's just like have some perspective here on how skewed these conversations already are when obviously the biggest existential threat to humanity wasn't even asked about in the presidential debate, even after all the incredible work at COP21 and the incredible work in the administration to actually get a global pack, which just got mm-hmm. put into, you know, which was just ratified. Um, that's where our politics is. And that's how hard it is to even get that kind of question into the psyche of an election campaign. Yeah. So um, it comes from. So, But by the way, climate change isn't a top priority for most voters. Yet. Yeah. Yeah. Scary. So think about that, yeah. right? So just to put it in perspective, we got a lot of hard work to do to make this issue 
uh, a greater party. And by the way, I think climate change is the wagon to hook ourselves onto. Right. Um, because food is such an, just an integral part of climate, both driving the problem, but also a potential solution, solution as well as going to face the brunt of the impact of climate. So, and it's a language that people can understand when I tell people, when I tell people that, you know, our kids and grandkids are probably not going to have wine, chocolate, coffee, water, uh, water, <laughs> yeah, uh, shellfish, all these things. People are like, oh my god, like we got to do something about it because all of a sudden it feels real. So I think there's a huge opportunity that we're missing right now. But that's the kind of thing we got to do a much better job of if we want our, our national politics to reflect. Uh, the issues we care about. Was there something uh, during your time as a uh, senior policy advisor that you thought would happen or that you were working towards that didn't actually come to fruition? Oh, yeah, lots of stuff. Um, you know, you got a limited set of time. We had zero budget. Yeah. Um, let's move at zero dollars. Uh, um, and, you know, so you're making trade-offs. You know, I think big areas of opportunity that we d- did some work on, but... but um, didn't fully, uh, you know, see through. I think employee wellness is a big opportunity where we make sure that our workplaces are, are environments that support the health and well-being of, of, of people who are working and also their families. Um, and I think that's starting to take on. I think in 10 years that will be the norm. Um, want to do more on cooking. We did some great stuff on cooking, but I think um, there's more to do on helping make easier for families to cook and think about what home economics of the future could look like and you know so there's unfinished work there but um but most of the big stuff that we you know where there was fruit to pick yeah uh you know we picked it we picked (laughs) we picked a lot of fruit yeah i mean there's no doubt that you made incredible uh strides in in the area of food policy uh across the board Um, Okay, so we're going to take a really quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, I want to shift our focus to what you're currently working on and talk a little bit about the role of food, uh, of technology in food. So stay tuned. mom-and-pop operations since 2006, the Brooklyn Kitchen provides the tools that shape our food culture. They stock a curated variety of pots, pans, knives, small appliances, and other kitchen essentials. Their grocery department works closely with local farms and food artisans to bring you the tastiest fresh produce, dairy, and pantry items. Their teaching kitchens allow them to offer a wide breadth of cooking classes, from knife skills to pick butchering, from cooking for couples to pickling and canning, from home brewing to pie making. Something new is always happening at the Brooklyn Kitchen. Visit them at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, or visit thebrooklynkitchen.com. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with Sam Cass, former White House chef and, quote, food czar <laughs> for the Obama administration. Okay, so let's let's talk about where what you're doing now. Um, t- tell me about Trove Worldwide. Yeah, um, so all my work really focuses on that intersection between 
health, climate change, sustainability, and transparency. And so Trove, uh, it's playing out in a number of different ways, but Trove is a um, little firm that I started to really help, mostly with startups, um, to to figure out a path uh, forward for those companies who are founding their businesses to really solve that problem. Um, and then, you know, uh, you know, but also as those companies get bigger, how do you bring these these ideas to scale because I think scale really matters mm-hmm. it's not good enough for us to have a bunch of perfect companies that serve a very few people like these this way of life has to be accessible for everybody uh, and which means you're going to have to make some compromises it's not all gonna, always going to be perfect but I'll take 75% of the way if it reaches everybody um, and so trying to f- you know find those paths with various companies at different stages um, is is where I focus there and I'm also partner with uh, f- with an investment fund called Acre, which is investing along the same lines um, for companies who are working to transform the food system in that way. And so between those two big things, um, it's, it's quite exciting. Um, you see this next generation of, of, of entrepreneurs who are really set to solve these problems um, through lots of different ways, from, from hardcore agriculture stuff all the way through consumer goods and everything in between. Um, it, it gets me uh, very hopeful. Uh, and you seem to have a third role. <laughs> so uh, last spring it was announced that you joined a company called Init as their chief consumer experience officer. Mm-hmm. You could have worked for anyone. So I'm, I'm wondering what this company is doing specifically that motivated you to take on that, that role. Um, yeah, so Init, Init's a, a, a fascinating startup uh, that's doing just incredible work. Uh, and the, what got me so excited about about Init is that basically they're thinking about, we're thinking about how do you use technology to make cooking easier and and make healthy choices uh, more accessible to people. And right now, you know, our kitchens have basically been unchanged for about 70 plus years with the exception of the microwave which I don't think anybody can argue has sort of been a big boon for health. Um, and um, the, and so cooking relative to the rest of our lives, which has gotten sped up and moving faster and faster, is taking a longer time, right, mm-hmm. uh, compared to how we do everything else. It's sort of like we're still typing on a typewriter in our kitchens. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how do we use technology and really listen to the information that's within food to help us manage our food better, uh, shop easier, waste less, so our refrigerators are going to know what's inside and and suggest recipes based on what's going to go bad. Um, Your ovens are going to help you cook uh, in a way that's efficient and make sure that the results are delicious and great. Because there's all these barriers along the way of you don't know what you have, you don't know what to make with it, or you keep making the same thing so you're bored. Um, It's stressful. Is it going to turn out right? You don't want to mess it. There's all these things that on any given day – um, are barriers for people to cook. And so they end up eating out or doing a frozen dinner. And that's led to a real decline in our health. So we keep calling on people to eat healthier mm-hmm. and just sort of uh, to cook more. And we keep kind of plead with them, just cook, just cook. But we're not actually thinking about what can we do to make it easier. And I think that's going to be critical. Um, so speaking of food tech companies, oh, and by the way, in it is, is making all of those products that is going to, um, hopefully change the way people, people eat. Um, so speaking of food tech companies, we've also seen those that are doing things like making alternative meat products. Mm -hmm. And by the way, any company that has a web 
site or an app, I think, are trying to like position themselves as a, as food tech, yeah. as a food tech company. Yeah, yeah. But um, what do you see like the biggest impact being in in their ability to make extensive challenges are, that our food system faces beyond uh, encouraging people to cook? Um, just in general, like all the various technologies that yeah, I'm seeing? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, there's so much happening. Um, and, and I think I, it's too soon to see kind of which ones are going to play out. I think a lot of the alternative protein – alternative proteins are going to be a big space no matter what. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there's an interesting debate about do we just try to eat more vegetables and make those easier to grow and more uh, affordable to people or do we try to use vegetables to mimic meat or grow meat in a lab? I'm not convinced on the meat in the lab thing yet. I think it's um, beyond the sort of um, like emotional reaction. And I, and I try to keep emotions aside, at least in my initial take, try to analysis on any sort of given innovation. Um, I just don't see how that scales. Uh, but maybe they figure that. Maybe they crack that nut. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but, um, you know, using vegetables to create meat substitutes – I'm open to it. Uh, I've tasted some of them. Some They're getting better. Uh, some of them are actually quite good. Um, but I do think we're going to have to figure out how to produce protein in a more sustainable way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, take some of the pressure off the land that we're putting on it right now. Um, uh, you know, I think spectrometers are going to be transformational. What, what um, are those? So spectrometer is actually technology that's been around for a long time. It, it's a basically a light. Every, everything when you hit it with light has a basically a fingerprint. And when the light comes back, you can tell a lot about any any object or food uh, based on on sort of how the light bounces off of it. And so um, in the next five or so years, five or ten years, we'll have spectrometers on our phones. And so what you'll be able to tell once these databases are built being and they're being built and once they're 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 done, you'll be able to scan say an orange and know where that orange came from. Uh, what the nutrient density is, uh, how old it is, how many days left until it starts to go go bad. And eventually we'll be able to predict flavor. So you'll be able to scan an orange and know, like, is that orange going to taste wow. good? Yeah, so transparency is coming. Uh, radical transparency is coming. And the mere threat of that, I think, is going to be pretty transformational to, to industry. Um, to motivate them. Well, it's sort of, you know, yeah. Well, we're gonna, it's going to clean. Like part of, a huge part of the problem in the food system is the lack of transparency. Yes. And so if you, you know, you, and some companies are working hard to kind of rebuild transparency. I think technology is going to impose transparency. Um, we, we need both. It's great. that and, and the companies that are embedding that into how they're building their company. Um, from the very start. From the start. Like Sweetgreen is a great example of, of how, you know, as they're growing and they're getting scale, which is great. But everywhere they go, they're incredibly transparent on their supply chains. Yeah. Um, and the decisions that they're making. And, the, and you know, it's not always it, – the, these questions aren't simple. But, but technology is going to make that. Like the consumer will have the power. And uh, the implications of that are pretty profound, not always necessarily good. So – you know, what happens when everybody can know if that orange is going to taste good? Like, what happens to the farmer who's not growing the best oranges? Um, but in some ways, it could prevent food waste, and then in some ways, it could exacerbate that problem. Exactly. So, so you know, we could start wasting a lot more, or we could put dynamic pricing where, depending on, like, what the read on that orange is, if it's going to go bad in a few days, you can dramatically reduce the cost. 
and maybe lower income people could get really good food that just doesn't have a much life left on it. Yeah. Um, so the, 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 the jury's out in terms of how we're going to use these technologies, but there's a lot coming like the biome microbiome is another space that I think will be transformational for health. I, I don't know what that is. <laughs> yeah. So the microbiome is, uh, so in our guts, we have about a hundred trillion bacteria, um, that, science is showing basically regulates just about everything. Um, and we really are feeding our guts and our guts are feeding us. Um, and I mean, everything, huge obesity, food allergies, uh, inflammation, all kinds of diseases are being linked back to gut health. And so, um, this understanding, I think is going to start to transform, uh, how we even view nutrition and, and how we start, uh, helping get people on the right track. So like I could go on and on, um, but from our kitchens to our fields, I mean, I think data alone is going to help make how we grow food so much more efficient, even make us rethink where we grow food eventually. Like Mm -hmm. right now we're growing a lot of things in areas that should never be grown. Yeah. Um, where the climate's just not right. And that's why we've had to suck so much water out of our aquifers and soil has been so depleted. So I think there's, you know, data's I think going to help, with a lot of that and help make farmers more efficient, particularly when that's accessible to small or mid-sized farmers right now that all the huge, the huge farmer, the huge, you know, industrial farmers have very sophisticated tools, which is why they keep getting more and more efficient and why the middle farmers have been decimated. We can get those same tools, uh, to smaller mid mid-sized farmers now. Uh, so that's the kind of stuff that I think is going to be quite transformational. It's fascinating. And, Optimistic. Dare I say optimistic? Oh, I'm wildly optimistic. I mean, you know, we have big problems, but um, but we also have made more progress on this issue than anybody could have dreamed of 10 years ago. And if you look at the arc of, say, the environmental movement, we are so far ahead of where they were at this point, depending on how you say when it sort of started. Mm-hmm. But we're babies compared to, you know... What the, envir- been doing. the environmental movement's been hardcore for a long time, uh, and we've gotten a ton done. Um, so, you know, I feel good, and now you see the culture starting to transform as well, and all this next generation of both entrepreneurs, but like you know, young young you know teenagers and kids in their twenties, like they care about this stuff. Right? Millennials, millennials, <laughs> God, that word is just killing me. But but yes, uh, yes, they care about it. Uh, this is, they're making decisions based on their health, based on environmental impact. And, um, this is who they are and they express it through the food that they're eating. And that's a game changer. Um, and as they continue to take up more market powers, uh, it's going to be a huge force for both cultural change, business change. And then our job is to translate that into political change. All right. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up for today. But Sam, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been awesome. So much fun. Let's do it again. (laughs) I mean, I'm going to take you up on that. (laughs) I really will. Okay. Um, I want to give a big thanks and shout out to Jenny Gill for all of your help in coordinating this interview. I also want to thank our sponsors for your generous support. Our show is produced with help 
uh, from Taylor Lenzette. And our show music is by the one and only Tim Archer. Thank you to our engineer, Pierre Bienamy. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Um, if you have episode questions uh, or suggestions, email us at eatingmatters at heritageradionetwork.org and be sure to find us on Facebook and Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liute and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.